Let's bow our heads one more time as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask His blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess our ignorance of Your Word apart from Your illuminating Spirit shedding light on Your Scriptures and shedding light into our dark hearts. We confess, too, that our sin is largely to blame for our misunderstandings of your word and our inability or unwillingness to apply it. So we pray, would you soften our hearts now? Would you overcome our sinful rebellion against you, our sinful stubbornness to your word and its priorities for us? Give us grace to receive your word implanted that is able to save our souls. For Jesus' sake, amen. In many churches today, social and political conservatism are almost equated with being a good person or being a godly person, being moral, even being a Christian. Of course, social and political liberalism can have similar weaknesses and be similarly misunderstood or confused with godliness. But among people who think that the Bible is God-breathed and inerrant, conservatism is in very many places the brand of social and political thinking most likely to be equated or confused somehow with God's approval. Is it possible, though, for us to be more conservative than God is? In other words, is it always right to lean as far right as possible on every issue? Well, the Apostle Peter was confronted with a version, a religious version of that question in a vision. If you'll turn with me to Acts 10. Acts 10. We're going to read the passage all the way through without interruption, verses 1 to 48, and then we'll think through the point and a few implications of it. Acts 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel had spoken, had, who had spoken to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. 
But while they, were preparing, while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it there were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again, a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for, for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone who is of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee and after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who he had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
And the believers from the, among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. So Cornelius, just to be clear, is a God-fearing Gentile. He's not a Jew. The issue here, though, is not whether Gentiles can be saved. I mean, Rahab, the Canaanite, was saved long before this narrative, back in Joshua 2. But Rahab became a Jew. So does Cornelius have to become a Jew to be a Christian? Well, that was a live question in the time of Acts 10. And how is any Jewish Christian like Peter supposed to evangelize Gentiles anyway when Jews were supposed to avoid contracting ceremonial defilement from Gentiles precisely because of the kinds of foods they ate? If Cornelius makes Peter unclean, how can Peter welcome Cornelius into Christian fellowship without Peter being defiled and disqualified from worship himself? That question was so important that it took an angel and a vision for both of them to get it right. God sends Cornelius an angel to tell him to send for Peter and Joppa, and then God makes Peter hungry, really hungry. And Luke even repeats it. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. Well, I know he wanted something to eat. He was hungry. I know he was hungry. He wanted something to eat. Yep, just keep that in mind. He's hungry. He wants something to eat. It's important. Because at the same time that Peter is hungry and wants something to eat, he has a vision of unclean animals with a voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter objects, even though he is famished. And the vision happens two more times with a voice saying, What God has made clean, do not call common. And at just that moment, what God has called clean, don't call common, while Peter is trying to figure out what that vision and what that explanation even means, the Spirit of God speaks to him in a special way to go with these three men who are knocking on the door without making any distinctions between yourself as a Jew and them as Gentiles. If you look at the little footnote in your ESV, if you've got that, when it says uh, in verse 20, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, the footnote there says, making no distinctions. And that makes a lot of sense of the original word there in the Greek. That's a really good footnote. You should pay attention to that. And it makes a lot of sense not only of that word, but of the context. Don't make any distinction between what is clean or who is clean and who you think is unclean, because that distinction is going away. You can walk with them, because I'm the one who sent them there in the first place. So, 
Peter answers the door. He entertains them as guests for the night, apparently having meals with them when that would not have been allowed under traditional Jewish law and custom. The next day, they travel to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, predominantly Gentile city, the capital of Judea, and they all go in with Cornelius' Gentile friends and family gathered there already, which again would have been scandalous for a Jew. And that's when Peter articulates what the vision was about. God has shown me. But notice what he says. God has shown me Not that I should not call any food common or unclean. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's why he accompanied the three messengers in the first place. No one is beyond God's saving concern simply because of their ethnicity, nationality, or class. God wants to be worshipped by all kinds of people, from all kinds of places, from all kinds of cultures and classes. Cornelius then tells Peter what the angel told him and says they're ready to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Well, Peter then takes that as an invitation to preach that God shows no favoritism based on ethnicity or nationality or class. God will accept worship from anyone who fears Him and does what is right, which in this context is responding to the gospel of Jesus with repentance of sin, from sin, and faith in Christ alone for forgiveness, regardless of what you used to think about religion. Peter then goes on to preach the gospel. God anointed Jesus to do good works and heal and cast out demons. Jesus handpicked the apostles in verse 39 as witnesses to all he did. The Jewish leaders put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree, considering him cursed by God. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree from the book of Deuteronomy. But God proved them wrong about Jesus by raising him from the dead on the third day. He's not cursed, he didn't commit any sin. If he was cursed, he was cursed for you and for your sin. He took your curse in your place for your sin. Jesus then appeared not to everyone, but only to those Jesus chose to be eyewitnesses to his physical resurrection from the dead. And the Bible is very clear about that. It makes no bones about it. He didn't appear to everybody. He didn't appear to you and me. He didn't even appear to everybody who was alive at the time. He appeared to those who he chose to appear to because that was his choice. And he said, you guys, you are going to be my witnesses to my resurrection. And everybody else can believe based on your word. And so they ate and drank with him, with the risen Christ, in part proving that Jesus had risen bodily, physically, he can eat, and we're eating with him. And in part to testify that he was truly alive, no longer in the tomb. He wasn't just a spirit, he wasn't just a mirage, he wasn't a mass hallucination. And what Jesus commanded them to preach was the gospel. So notice Cornelius said, let us hear all that you've been commanded And here Peter tells him, I'll tell you what Jesus commanded us. He commanded us to preach the gospel to you. 
He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He, that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Well, that's a pretty big statement. Apparently, the whole Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, had been testifying to just this message about Jesus being Savior and Judge, about God forgiving our sins when we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. It had been testifying to just that message in the creation account of Genesis, in the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, in the history of national Israel, their slavery in Egypt, their exodus out of Egypt, their conquest of the Promised Land, their exile from the Promised Land, and their return to the Promised Land. All of that was testifying to Jesus. According to the Apostle Peter, as he learned it from Jesus himself. Well, Peter doesn't even get all the words out of his mouth when the Spirit of God falls on the Gentiles here in Cornelius' house who are hearing Peter preach this gospel. And notice how Peter says it. The Spirit came on them just like the Spirit filled the Jewish believers at Pentecost in Acts 2. Well, man, if you're a Jewish nationalist, I don't know what you're going to do with that. I mean, for Peter, this is a watershed. Uh, evidently, Cornelius does not have to become kosher, Jewish in culture and diet and ceremony in order to become a Christian. This is a big deal. They're praising God for His power and mercy in different languages that they had never learned, just like the Jews did in Acts 2 at Pentecost. So Peter sees no reason not to baptize them right then and there, which brings them into union with the rest of the church as it begins to grow across cultural, ethnic, and political boundaries under the oversight of an apostle, Peter himself, commissioned by Christ and confirmed by all this supernatural guidance of a Jewish apostle and a Gentile convert. So I think the point of that story, if you're going to try to boil it down, I mean, this is a lot of verses. It's 48 verses. There's a lot going on here. But I think the main thing going on that Luke wants you to get out of it by the way he's telling you the story, relating the historical narrative, is that God, and I couldn't come up with a better verb than this, but God, I think the best way to put it, I can put it, is God certifies. God certifies that He will forgive anyone who trusts in Jesus. He certifies it. In other words, what I mean by that is He's making sure that you can feel sure that this is the way you are saved by surrounding this message and this moment with all of this divine supernatural guidance and repetition of the guidance. The point of Peter's vision is what God has made clean, don't call common. But that's not just about food. That's about people 
as you keep reading what happens to Peter and who he's interacting with and who God wants him to preach the gospel to. That's why the Spirit says to Peter in verse 19, go with these men, not simply without delay, but without making any distinction. It's not just that Peter shouldn't make the men wait. It's that Peter shouldn't worry that he's going to be traveling with non-Jews who don't eat kosher and who don't do the Jewish ceremonial washings before they eat non-kosher food. So Peter then says in verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean, not just any food. And then the point of Peter's sermon in verses 34 to 43 is that Jesus is Lord of all. Now the ESV puts that in parentheses and that's a kind of unfortunate punctuation. That's not a parenthetical statement. Jesus is Lord of all. You, you don't say that kind of thing. In, oh, and by the way, you know, I don't need this phrase to make my point in the sentence, so I'll just put it in parentheses. I mean, that's what you do. When you don't need that, grammatically, I think even the homeschool moms in the room might even agree with that, that if you don't need a phrase to make the sentence make sense, you put it in parentheses. I think you need this sentence, this phrase to make this sentence work. Jesus is Lord of all. You've got to have that sentence to make this moment work in Acts. Jesus is Lord of all. Even guys like like, like Cornelius and his whole family who didn't believe in Jesus prior to this. He's Lord of all. He's not just Lord of the Jews. He's not just Lord of people who eat kosher. He's Lord of everybody and everything. Now this is a repetitive section. God took supernatural pains to make this point. Jesus is Lord of all, not just the Jews, and that everybody, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Full stop. And God took supernatural pains to make that point, not only here, but throughout biblical history. God sends an angel to Cornelius so that Cornelius will know to send for Peter. Cornelius then relates that vision to Peter later in the text. Hey, I had this vision. And Luke records it for you. Now it's repeated for you. God sends a dream for Peter, and God gives that dream to Peter himself three times in its initial context, and then Peter will relate it to other people in chapter 11 and again in chapter 15. So now, as a reader, we've seen this vision repeated three times for Peter and then another two times by Peter after this context here in chapter 10. So the Holy Spirit also speaks directly to Peter as soon as the vision is over and the messengers from Cornelius are knocking on the door. But even prior to this, God anointed Jesus with power to do miracles. That's supernatural too. That's part of the supernatural message. Jesus then commissioned his apostles to testify to his divine power, identity, authority, and resurrection. And before all that even happened, before Jesus was even born, all the Old Testament prophets bore witness to Jesus ahead of time. And when the gospel of Jesus is preached to non-Jews, God's Spirit is poured out on them, just as it was poured out on the Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2. I mean, there's a whole lot of confirmation going on here. 
That's why I'm, I'm saying that the best word I know is certifies, because that's what God is doing in giving all this supernatural confirmation and revelation. He's certifying it. He's signing his name. Hey, this is from me. Hey, this is what I want you to do. Hey, I want this. And here's how you know. I'm going to do stuff that is stuff that doesn't normally happen to help you to understand, yeah, I mean this. This means that. I mean, this is one of the longest, most repetitive sections in Acts with some of the most intrusive occurrences of supernatural guidance of individuals anywhere in the Bible. 48 verses of this. And yet it's all included here, repeated in the text and confirmed by divine guidance to make certain that we are certain that God will forgive anyone, anyone, anyone who trusts in Jesus. No matter where they are from or what they look like, as long as they turn from their sins, admit that Jesus is Lord of all, judge of all, Savior of all, and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and right standing with the only true and living God. These experiences of Peter and Cornelius of divine guidance are God's megaphone. Hey, I'm doing something here. Pay attention. And I'm doing something that you might not even want me to do or didn't think I would be willing to do, but hey, I'm doing it. That's the point. But that point, God's willingness to forgive anybody from anywhere as long as they trust in Jesus, is pointing us to other implications too in this context. God certifies that He will forgive anyone who trusts in Jesus. But that truth implies other truths. And we're going to think about those other truths right now. Implications of the truth that God certifies that He will forgive anyone who trusts in Jesus. First implication. Forgiveness of sins in Jesus is both necessary and sufficient for everyone without distinction. Forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name is both necessary and sufficient for everyone without distinction to be reconciled to God. Look, I want us to get this straight. The, the Bible teaches you that even a man like Cornelius, who didn't believe in Jesus beforehand, but was a God-fearer, even he needs forgiveness in Jesus for his heart to be clean. He needs it. Forgiveness in Jesus is for people who don't yet believe in Jesus or know about him. It's offered to them, too. Now, they need to take it. They need to turn from their moral self-reliance before God and trust in Jesus. But the message is for them. Just because they don't already believe it doesn't mean, well, like my neighbor has said to us before, wow, I'm really glad that I don't believe what you believe or I'd be in real trouble. Ah, oh, my friend, it doesn't work like that. You are in real trouble because you don't believe it. And it's still true of you, even though you don't believe it. You still need this. Cornelius needed it. But forgiveness in Jesus is all Cornelius needs for his heart to be clean as well. He doesn't have to add anything to it. Not his own works. Not his own merits. 
And Cornelius is allowed to have forgiveness for his heart to be clean as Cornelius without becoming just like Peter culturally. So even though Cornelius is not an ethnic Jew, he still needs God's forgiveness in Jesus, a forgiveness that he cannot have as an adherent of any other religion. Cornelius can't have this forgiveness by trying to worship God as a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a polytheist in a Roman society who wants to keep on worshiping the goddess Diana. At the same time, if Cornelius does have forgiveness in Jesus, then his heart is already clean before God without any need for any other religious ritual, even without the rituals of Judaism itself. And Cornelius is welcome to take the God of the Bible at his word when he says that Jesus' blood atones for the sins of all who trust in him. The takeaway, then, is that every person of every place and ethnicity, of every color and culture, needs forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. And forgiveness in Jesus is all anyone needs in order to be reconciled to the God they've offended and whose condemnation and wrath they have invited and deserved. And no one in all creation need feel that God will not welcome them if they do trust in Jesus. The promises of God's forgiveness to us in Christ, which God made and recorded in the Old Testament, are not only for Jews or for people who become Jews. They are for Gentiles who become Christians without ever becoming Jews. Or white. Or black. Or Asian. Or Hispanic. And sinner, the same still remains true today. You need forgiveness of your own sins just as much as we need it for ours. And that forgiveness is all you need for your heart to be clean before God, and you are allowed to have forgiveness no matter what, without any change in your ethnicity, nationality, or class as long as you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. That change comes only in how you think about your sin, how you relate to your sin, and how you relate to God. You do have to turn from your sins. You do have to forsake them. You do have to take God's side against your sins and stop defending yourself in them. But nothing about your ethnicity, nationality, or class can keep you from being forgiven by this God. Second, the repetition of the revelation is God's good assurance to us today, not just to Peter or Cornelius. The repetition of the revelation The dream, the spirit speaking, the angel, that's all God's good assurances to us today, not just to Peter or Cornelius individually. God spoke to Cornelius through a special angel. He spoke to Peter in a special dream. That revelation is repeated in Scripture and handed down to us for emphasis, and it has been handed down to us today for our encouragement. This angel that appeared to Cornelius, did not just appear for Cornelius. He appeared to Cornelius for you and me. 
Same with Peter's vision. Peter's vision was only for Peter himself to see in the first instance, that's true, but we are the beneficiaries of Peter's vision because his vision didn't just encourage him, it encourages us still today as a reason for us to be confident that the gospel is for us as well. God wants you and me to believe that he gave Peter that vision for that purpose to encourage us in our faith in Jesus. Just because we didn't see the angel or have the vision doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it doesn't mean that that vision and that angel were not intended for us. They were intended for us. We read about them, didn't we? You're sitting here, aren't you? It's for you. All Scripture is for us. God will save and sanctify anyone who has faith in Jesus, no matter who they are, where they're from, or what they've done. God's special revelation to Cornelius and Peter assures us of that point still today. Third, third implication. What makes us all unclean before God is not our skin, it's our sin. Again, don't get me wrong, we are all dirty. We are all unclean before God. But that uncleanness goes deeper. It's not just skin deep. It's not my shade of melanin that makes me dirty. It's not the part of the world that I come from or the kind of government that I'm under that makes me dirty. Nor is it the history of those who share my color or culture that makes me dirty. What makes me dirty is not what's on the outside or what I put into my body from the outside. What makes me dirty is what is on the inside. It's in my heart. It's what comes out of my heart. Mark 7. That's what makes me dirty. The sin that comes out of my heart is what makes me dirty. And why is that? It's because my heart itself is dirty. The heart that is producing my sin is sinful in its character, in its nature. Jesus said, Mark 7, it's not what you put into your body that defiles you because food and drink only reaches your stomach and is expelled. It doesn't reach into your soul. So what you eat can't make you dirty and what you eat or don't eat also cannot make you clean. no matter what the commercial said. Because it's what comes out of our hearts that defiles us. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That stuff doesn't just come out of the TV. It doesn't just come out of the radio. It doesn't just come out of your neighbor's mouth. It does, doesn't just come out of your brother or sister who you don't like or your spouse who you're irritated with. It comes out of your 
heart and mine. All these evil things come from within. They are the things that defile a person. It's not what the other person did to you that defiles you. It's what you did. It's what you are. It's your heart that defiles you. You are not sinful because you sin outwardly. It's the other way around. You sin outwardly because you really are sinful. And that's what you do. Sinners sin. So, when we say, when we sin, and then we say, ah, that wasn't really me, that's not who I am. And we realize what we have done. That's not me, but don't, don't let that change your view of who I am. That's not me, that wasn't me. Ah, sinner, it was you. That is you. It is me when I do that. Because again, I do not become a sinner simply because I sin. I sin because I am a sinner at heart. That's Jesus talking. All this theft, immorality, murder, sensual, sensuality, coveting, all that stuff. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen to you because someone put a gun to your head saying, do this or I'm going to shoot you. No, no, it comes out of your heart. Because that's what you like. That's what you gravitate to. That's what you do when you're left to your own devices. But that says something about us, doesn't it? It says we're sinners. And we need the same forgiveness that Cornelius got. And God knows it. And that's why I sent Jesus. Because your problem is something you can't fix. Only the blood of Jesus penetrates deeply enough to sprinkle your conscience clean. And this leads us to another implication. Identity is not ultimately sociological. Identity is ultimately theological. Identity is not ultimately sociological or demographic. It's not about the kind of person I am on the outside, all the kind of survey boxes that I check. It's theological. Identity is about who I am before God. It is not society that defiles me. It's my own heart that defiles me, quite apart from society. I would be a sinner if there were no TV or social media. I would still sin. It is not my whiteness that defiles me. Whiteness, blackness, brownness cannot and do not defile. You do not have to repent of your whiteness or your blackness or your brownness because God does not problematize your skin. He problematizes your sin. That's your problem before God. No matter what color you are. 
Cornelius was not a problem to God because he was a Roman centurion who had participated in the subjugation of a Jewish people in their own land. Cornelius was not a problem to God because he was part of a majority culture that subjugated a minority culture, nor was Cornelius a problem to God ultimately because he was a non-Jew outsider to all the ceremonial purity laws. Cornelius was a problem to God in the way that any Jew was already and also a problem to God because Cornelius had a sinful, dirty heart just like every Jew, just like every other Gentile. He was made in the image of God, theological. But his sin distorted and warped and misrepresented that image. And instead of reflecting that image, it refracted it. It bent it out of shape. And now, when you look at Cornelius, you don't see an accurate image of God. You see a distortion of who God really is. And only God can fix that. You see, this is the death knell of identity politics and intersectionality. Cornelius is not ultimately defined in the Bible as a white, straight, non-Jewish, middle-class, government-employed Italian male in his early 40s. He is not unsavable because he is part of the oppressor class or because he is a cog in a colonizing military machine. He is a centurion in the Roman army, a commander of about 100 men in a military unit. And he gets saved without having to get a different job. Cornelius is unclean, that's for sure. But it's not his outward status that makes him unclean. It's his inward sinfulness. His heart is unclean because of his sin. But Cornelius does not have to repent of his Romanness. He does not have to change his job or repent of his socioeconomic standing. He does not have to take part in a struggle session to feel how his participation in the Roman military has traumatized Peter as a Jew. He does not have to become Jewish and change all of his cultural habits. He does not have to repent of his status as the world defines it, but he does have to repent of his sin as God defines it, just like any other sinner. He is, however, already living as one who fears the God who made heaven and earth and all that's in it. He is doing good to the people of God around him in the Jewish nation, giving alms to the poor, mercy gifts, praying to the God of all creation, turning from his native idolatry and immorality. He is repenting already. But he is not repenting of his skin color or his maleness or his Romanness. He is repenting only of what is sinful about him and about the culture he lives in. Idolatry, cruelty, self-centeredness, lovelessness, arrogance, abuse of power. He doesn't quit his ethnicity or his nationality or his patriotism, or his position, or his socioeconomic class. Cornelius did not have to become a Jew socially or economically to become a Christian spiritually and morally. Cornelius, thank God, became a Christian as Cornelius. He repented of his sins, not his status. 
He identifies now with Christ and Christ's people as a believer in Jesus, but he identifies with them as the same outward man he was before, minus his loyalty to his own sins. He's still the same man, Cornelius the Centurion, the Roman, the government-employed Italian male in his early 40s with a wife and kids and maybe even a few servants. Cornelius doesn't have to turn into a mirror image of Peter and Peter's Judaism. That's exactly the point God was making to Peter in Peter's vision of the unclean animals. People are not unclean because of their outward status or appearance or diet. We're unclean because of our inward sinfulness, which is what leads us to commit outward sins in the first place. And the whole reason we become Christians is because we want Jesus to cleanse our hearts. And we know that he can. He's the only one who can. It leads us to our fifth implication. Jesus cleanses our hearts. This is the gospel. Jesus cleanses your heart. Full stop. Man, if that's not good news to you, if you're not relieved by that sentence, I'm not sure what to do for you. Jesus cleanses our hearts. He cleanses our hearts of the guilt and dirt and shame of our sins. He washes our souls. He cleanses our consciences. Just listen to a few excerpts from Hebrews. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, Old Testament ceremonial law, if that stuff sanctified for the purification of the flesh, of the body, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You need that sentence. It's Hebrews 9.14. Or, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10, 14. You need that sentence too. Because you're still being sanctified and you don't feel perfect. But Jesus says in his eyes, he has already perfected you even though you are still being sanctified. Hmm? How about that for a life verse? Or Hebrews 10. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near... Don't you want to draw near to him? Isn't this why you may have had trouble getting up and coming to church this morning? Because you didn't want to draw near, because you didn't feel worthy to, because you just committed some stupid foul sin. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And that's where he says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. Why do you forsake the assembling of yourselves together? Precisely because you feel sinful and you don't want to be around holy people and you're embarrassed and you're ashamed and you feel dirty and guilty and sad and despairing. That's why you don't come to church. Because you just got into knockdown drag out with your wife and you lost. And notice this, I know this is a little further afield, it's a cross-reference, but it's so sweet. Sprinkling, with our hearts sprinkled clean. Sprinkling is a very gentle way to cleanse things, isn't it? It doesn't say it hosed it down. 
It's not a, it's not a high flow shower head. It's a sprinkling. It's not a spray. And it's not scrubbing. It's sprinkling. That's all it takes. Jesus' blood is so powerful, so concentrated, that all he has to do is sprinkle it on your conscience. And immediately, it is cleansed. All the way. You fear, sinner. You fear him because he's holy. But you do not realize that he is gentle and kind and patient and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness to those who fear you, fear him. And when a dirty sitter comes to him, he doesn't spray him, he sprinkles him. Because he's gentle. You can trust him to confess it, whatever it is. Another implication. I'm going to quit numbering these implications because there's a few more. Clean eating cannot cleanse your heart. Clean eating cannot cleanse your heart. Now, Peter, of course, had a very different version of clean eating. He ate kosher, no Jewish, no, no, uh, no pork for him, strictly a Jewish, ceremonially clean diet. So all those reptiles and birds that, that were shown to him. Do you realize I went back in Leviticus 11 this week my quiet time, I counted, there are 20 different kinds of unclean birds that you weren't supposed to eat. That's why there were birds there, because most of those birds would have been unclean. There are six kinds of reptiles that you couldn't eat as a Jew. And those are just the ones that were listed. So Peter was a clean eater. He didn't eat any of that stuff in his dream. And there might have been clean animals in there with those unclean ones, but the unclean ones would have made the clean ones unclean by contagion. So he couldn't eat any of it, even though he was starving. Now, we have a different version of clean eating today, eating foods without GMOs, genetically modified organisms. No refined sugars, low-carb, keto, calorie counting, all that. And that's fine as far as it goes. I'm not telling you to stop doing that. Maybe that diet has been a godsend to you and you were able to take off a lot of weight because of it. Fine, great, happy for you. But all too often, it goes too far, doesn't it? All too often, we slip into thinking that if we just keep the wrong things out of our bodies, we will be clean inside. But that is not Christianity. That's not living like a Christian. That's asceticism, harsh treatment of the body to feel good about yourself and how you relate to God in the world. Like what Paul said to the Colossians, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Self-control, 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 don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it. Don't gain weight, don't gain weight, don't gain weight. but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And you can keep all that stuff out of your body all you want to, and your heart is still as dirty as it was. It's not the answer to the way you feel inside. 
Clean eating cannot cleanse your heart because no matter what you keep out of your body, your soul keeps on secreting sin from inside you. And no food can make that stop. Of course, gluttony is not the answer either. So be careful at the potluck. But we all know that diet and exercise can become just as much a religion as Judaism ever was. And many people treat a gym like a temple. I mean, it was false teachers who devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Everything, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> you can eat. God wants you to eat. You should eat. And exercise is good. Buffet your body, make it your slave, so that after preaching to others, you yourself might not be disqualified. I get it. Paul said that. Be disciplined, be self-controlled in your appetites and habits, get your heart rate up, move around. Again, fine. But Paul tells Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness because while bodily training is of some value, godliness is, value, is of value in every way. You see the contrast. Bodily training is of some value, semicolon however, comma, godliness, in contrast to bodily training, is of value in every way because it holds promise both for the present life and the life to come. Your workout session only holds promise for this life. But as soon as you die, your workout was a waste. I should probably work out more. I kind of like to make fun of people who do work out because I know I probably should work out more. But regardless, if you're a Christian, part of the hope of heaven is you're going to get a new body. And it's going to be way better than the one you got. It's going to be the way better than the one you worked for at the gym all those hours. I'm not saying stop going to the gym. I'm saying stop thinking about it in a way that might be unhelpful. It's not ultimate. All those gains you get, they're not ultimate. And it doesn't necessarily make you godly to work out like that. And besides, you cannot sweat out the sin that defiles your heart. And while you don't want to trash the body God gave you, again, he's going to give you a far better one in the new creation as a gift of his grace. Next implication, Jesus is Lord, Savior, and Judge all in one. Jesus is Lord, Savior, and Judge all in one. Peter said, verse 36, Jesus is Lord of all. That's not a throwaway comment. In context, it means that Jesus is Lord not only over Jews, but over all people of all ethnicities and nations, even over all the people of all the religions that reject Jesus as Lord. He's king over all kings. He transcends, governs, rules all people and things. In verse 42, he's the one appointed by God also to be judge of the living and the dead. You realize that? Jesus is judge. That's actually one thing his resurrection proves. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was to prove that Jesus had no sin for which to die himself. He died as a substitute penalty for the sins of others. But because Jesus was sinless, Jesus proved that he alone has the moral authority to judge all people 
to evaluate, to reward or punish. And God's resurrection of him from the dead is the validation of his righteousness and his qualification as judge. So Jesus is not only Lord, not only judge, but he is also Savior. He is all three in one. He rules as Lord and King. He judges as the one who alone has perfectly kept God's standard himself. And he saves as the one who gave his sinless life as a ransom for your sinful soul. Another implication, the whole Old Testament testifies that anyone can have their sins forgiven in Jesus. The whole Old Testament testifies to that. Peter signs that statement. Peter says, verse 43, that all Scripture testifies to Jesus in this way. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. Those promises were not just for ethnic Jews. Peter the ethnic Jew said, All the prophets from Moses to Malachi testify to the forgiving and saving power of Jesus. It's all about him. Jesus is the son of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He's the son of Abraham in whom all the nations would be blessed. He is the ultimate Joseph, rejected brother who rises to become ruler of God's people and the one who provides us with the bread and the land of famine. Jesus is the prophet who brings God's promise of forgiveness and even embodies it. He's the priest who offers his own blood for the forgiveness of sins in a temple not made with hands. He's the bread of life. He pours out the living water of his spirit into our hearts in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's the Joshua who leads us to conquer our sins and take heaven by storm. He's the judge like Samson who overcomes more of our enemies by his own death than he even did in his life. He's the kinsman redeemer like Boaz. He's the son of David. Ruling God's kingdom He builds God's city. He is God's temple, the place where God meets man. He's our Mordecai, falsely accused and led to death only to defeat death by death and see his enemies hoisted on their own petard. He is the righteous sufferer of Job and Psalms. He is the wise and obedient son of Proverbs. He tasted our futility from Ecclesiastes when it happened to him, the righteous one, as it should have happened to us, the wicked. He's the husband of his people, the great lover of our unworthy soul in Song of Solomon. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the righteous branch of Jeremiah. He is the faithful shepherd who tracks down the strays and binds up the wounded in Ezekiel. He is the son of man who has given authority, power, and a kingdom in Daniel. He is the faithful husband to an unfaithful wife in Hosea. He is the judge on the day of the Lord and the distributor of the Spirit in Joel. He is the fallen tent of David, restored in Amos. He is the Savior who goes up to Mount Zion and Obadiah. He is the one to whom all the kingdom belongs. He is three days in the grave as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, but only because he was the obedient one, was the prophet who came into the world preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He alone did justice and loved kindness and walked humbly with his God in Micah. He is the stronghold and refuge in the day of trouble for Nahum. He is God's righteous one who lived by faith in God's word all his life in Habakkuk. He is the one who judged God's enemies in Zephaniah. He is also the one to whom the Lord rejoices over with gladness as his obedient son. He is the new temple filled with God's glory in Haggai. He is the shepherd struck down for the sheep in Zechariah. And he is the son of righteousness who rises on us with healing in his wings from Malachi. He is prophet, priest, king, word, new creation, new exodus, sacrifice, healer. He is literally everything that the Old Testament ever taught us to hope for. 
And he is that for anyone who will take him at his word. And because he is that, Jesus unites believers from all ethnicities in himself. He said, John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. And so Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul said in Ephesians 2.15, he created in himself one new man in place of the two, Jew-Gentile, thus making peace through the blood of his cross. So we are now not two peoples of God, Jewish and Gentile, but one people of God, one church, one living temple, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the one household of God. And that means all ethnic hatred is sin. Christian, you are not allowed to hate others because of the color of their skin or the nation in which they live, or the culture that has shaped them, or the sins that their nation or ethnicity has perpetrated against yours. Cornelius was a Roman centurion who embodied the Roman occupation of Judea. He was the symbol of the man keeping Judah down. You think Jews didn't resent men like him? In positions like his? With power like his? Remember what John the Baptist had to say to the soldiers who came to him for baptism, though. Don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. He had to say that because people in Cornelius' position were often extorting money from people by threats and false accusations. That's a real thing. And Cornelius was an outsider looking in on Jewish ceremonial tradition. So you think... He himself didn't feel that condescension from other Jews. You stay out there while we go all the way in. The derision, the revulsion of ultra-conservative Jews who thought his house could never be clean enough for them. And yet Peter preaches the gospel to him and to his extended family. No wonder he needed a vision. No wonder both of them needed a vision. Because this stuff runs deep. And yet Peter preaches the gospel to his entire extended family and the Holy Spirit falls on all of them and they all tell of God's mighty works in different languages just like the Jews did at Pentecost. No different. And that means the Gentiles get membership among God's new covenant people and all the privileges that go with it on the same footing as the Jews by faith alone in Christ alone. And Peter then stays with them another few days in their home enjoying table fellowship meals with Gentiles like Peter never would have done before. And here in Acts 10, Jesus gave Cornelius and Peter the gift that he purchased for them on the cross. He killed their hostility to each other. And this in turn implies that local churches should normally be inter-ethnic unless language barriers forbid it. The church is precisely the place where people of all colors and cultures come together to worship Jesus and enjoy reconciled fellowship in common faith, hope, and love in Christ. Churches that have Asians... And Hispanics, whites and blacks, worshiping all together, embody the ethnic peace that the gospel builds. And the world needs to see it. Another implication, personally. Stop trying to cleanse yourself. You cannot do it, sinner. You cannot cleanse your heart. You are too dirty. It is hopeless. 
You can scrub all you want. There is no soap strong enough to cleanse your soul. God said that. Jeremiah 2, verse 22, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. You cannot be socially conscious enough. You cannot be careful enough with what you put into your body. You cannot come to church enough. You cannot give enough money. You cannot take up the cause of the oppressed enough. You cannot be conservative enough. You cannot be liberal enough. There is nothing you can do to wash your heart clean of your sins. And that is according to God himself. But then God invites you very tenderly. He wants to bring you to an end of all that. And then you know what he says to you? He says, Isaiah 1.18, Come now. Come now. Let us reason together. Says the Lord, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How is that going to happen? You just told me I couldn't scrub myself clean enough. You just told me there's no soap in the world that goes deep enough for this. How in the world are you going to do that? You just brought me to a whole end of myself. Now you tell me to come and reason with you? I can't. Well, I'm all ears because I've got nothing left to say. Remember, uncleanness in the Old Testament was contagious. If one unclean person touched another, then that other person became unclean. But when the woman with the 13-year bleed touched Jesus, she did not make him unclean. He made her clean. There is clean and cleansing power in Jesus. And we're all in the same situation. Even our best righteousness, filthy rags, filthy rags. Preaching this sermon will do me no good zero good in cleansing my heart. It has nothing to do with that. And you're serving at the potluck or serving in children's ministry or serving at home or leading a Bible study or praying a prayer or discipling another believer will do you no good in cleansing your heart. Neither will your next clean eating plan or your bulimia or your OCD home cleaning schedule. But Jesus, His blood, His righteousness, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray again. Oh Lord Christ, we confess that we cannot wash ourselves clean. We have sinned our way into stains that we cannot remove. So wash us, we pray. Make us whiter than snow. Help us not to think that we can do anything 
to cleanse ourselves, but help us also to believe that you will cleanse us such as we are. Help us by your grace to agree with you about our sins and to forsake them. May we trust that Jesus alone cleanses our sinful souls. No matter who we are, no matter what we have done, no matter where we are from or what we look like, free us in the truth and grace of your gospel. For Jesus' sake, amen.